G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life, verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 53. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews... Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert. It's fair to say that's not the usual fare of a Palm Sunday sermon, is it? That's not the usual fare. Several weeks ago now, uh, we preached, well, I preached, you listened, uh, the, the usual Palm Sunday passage, the triumphal entry, as it's called, from chapter 12, uh, right at the beginning there. Um, I'm sure you remember Jesus and the crowds, um, they, they laid the palm branches, waved the palm branches, do you remember? They walked into Jerusalem, or in Jesus' case, no, he rode into Jerusalem and rode on a donkey. Uh, you remember the symbolism of humility and loneliness and peace, especially for the, this Christ character coming into Jerusalem, peace, not war and conquest. Um, and that's the usual scene, that's the usual entry to Jerusalem. And there's fanfare and there's Hosanna, like we sung, meaning God save or save us. There's ceremony and it's big and it's bright. I don't know what the image you have in your mind's eye, but I imagine a clear blue sky. I imagine beautiful weather. I imagine this wonderful, bright uh, celebration as they come in and it propels us into Easter week and it's wonderful and great. But I've decided this year to pick a rather different passage, one that strikes a very different tone. Uh, Yes, it is more grim and sombre, It is a good deal darker uh, than the open air of the triumphal entry. In fact, instead, we are locked away, aren't we, in the private meeting of a bunch of stuffy old men making more than a few sinister, dark plans. But friends, this morning, I'm, I'm hoping that as we look at this dark and grim and something, well, fairly depressing passage that it helps Christ to shine all the more brightly, that we see against that backdrop of dark. I think that dark backdrop makes Christ shine all the more clearly, clarifies all the better, the wonderful news, the brilliance of the news of Easter for us. And so I hope it propels us nevertheless into the Easter week, very much fixed on Jesus. And that's even though it results in this bleak and dark and grim conclusion there, verse 53, so from that day on they plotted to take his life. Therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews, he withdrew to a region in the desert with his disciples. Would you please pray with me as we begin? Our great God in heaven, we look to your word today, your word to us, that we might better see the Lord Jesus Christ. May the light, his light, the light of the world, shine all the brighter for the darkness around it. May we become better prepared to rejoice in him, to celebrate him this Easter. And so, Father, we pray, would you please mature our knowledge mature us in love, craft our minds and our lives that we'd better magnify the glory of Jesus this very week in the lead up to Easter and we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I put it to you that uh, this passage, which calls us onward to Easter, um, 
It may not be the triumphal entry, but it sure has the events of Easter in mind, doesn't it? I put it to you that this passage uh, calls us onward toward Easter in three distinct ways. And the first is that it sounds the call for us to worship and adore the Lord Jesus as Lord of all this Easter, even though He is not worshipped and adored by all. It calls on us as readers, as hearers, as listeners, to worship and adore Jesus as Lord of all, even though He is not recognised as Lord of by all. Um, we may not be looking at the triumphal entry, but I wonder if you noticed there in uh, verse 45, 46, uh, 47 in there, I wonder if you noticed there is a somewhat less illustrious entry to Jerusalem on view today. Uh, in the story. Now, the scene, of course, as Peter read it to us, uh, is, uh, it, it's set with these words, isn't it? Lazarus, come out! Uh, you remember there from the, and the, the whole story with Lazarus died and Jesus had delayed, hadn't made it in time, but Lazarus had died anyway, he wouldn't have made it in time. Lazarus was in the tomb, Jesus went to the tomb, having sympathised with the sisters, Martha and Mary, makes it to the tomb, Lazarus come out and Lazarus, of course, emerges, having been in there four days, emerges from the tomb, alive, this dead man, alive now by the power of God through the Lord Jesus, uh, Lazarus come out, the miraculous sign, raising him to life. And then where we pick up the story, verse 45, John describes for us two groups, friends, two groups. Verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him, but some of them some of who? Well, some who had seen what he'd done, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Two groups and with this second group, we aren't told that they believed, we aren't informed about their faith and by this stage in John's story, of course, I hope we've picked this up along the way, uh, when, you, when you think of the Pharisees, you have come to see them as the bad guys, the bad guys, capital T, capital B, capital G by this part, part in the story. It's, so it takes on something of a, a rather grim tone, it, to make matters slightly worse, that little phrase there, what Jesus had done, okay, the things that they'd seen, they'd seen what Jesus had done, that little phrase doesn't quite come across in the English but that's in the plural in the Greek and so it's saying, well, how much had they seen exactly? It isn't just that they'd seen Lazarus raised from the dead, Lazarus come out and this dead man emerges, how much had they seen and yet they still don't believe? They still don't have faith? They still instead run off to the Pharisees? No, and so they scurry off these dobbers, prompted by this latest thing that Jesus had done, off to Jerusalem they go with their rather dubious um, entry to Jerusalem. It seems that Lazarus coming out of the tomb was just the straw that broke the camel's back for these guys, they'd better go and tell now. Verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done and then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs and, and on it goes. Now, I don't know about you, but Pharisees, chief priests, Sanhedrin, I find it hard to kind of remember how those things all fit together. Are you like me? Hard to remember what, I, what all these terms particularly are, what do they mean? Uh, so, the, the idea is that the Pharisees 
So they were members of a particular brand of Judaism, a particular stream of Judaism in their day, well-respected, well-known and and, and reasonably powerful, and some of them were members of the Sanhedrin, which is this council, some of them. The Pharisees, by no means a majority, Uh, in fact, they were a minority in the Sanhedrin, this council of 70 men. Now, let me quote here about this this Sanhedrin from a a commentator. Uh, The highest, here he goes, the highest judicial body in the land was the Sanhedrin. Okay, so the highest judicial body in the land was the Sanhedrin, which under Roman authority controlled all Jewish internal affairs. Now, I didn't quite realise the extent of their power, actually. Listen to this. It was simultaneously a judiciary, so that means kind of like our courts, so it it was that, a judiciary, a legislative body... Right, So they could make new rules, new laws, like our politicians. So they were kind of like the courts and like the politicians. And, it says, through the high priest, an executive. So that is to say that the Sanhedrin had access to manpower to enforce their decisions. That's a lot of grunt, isn't it? They get to decide on whether you've broken the law, they get to make the laws for themselves and they have the power through the chief priest to be able to enforce what they've said. Oh my! And all of this authority was perceived to rest on a theocratic basis, theocratic meaning God rules us through this chosen council of 70-odd men who are assembled. So, you've got the highest body in the land, under Rome at least, these 70-odd holy men, and they are gathered, why? Well, because Jesus is doing stuff. He's doing things. He's done too many things. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs, and I find it staggering, and I wonder if you do too. How is it that uh, these men didn't stop to consider at some point Hey, if he's doing all these miraculous signs, perhaps these signs point to something. Perhaps they're significant uh, in some way. Maybe we've been too quick to write this Jesus off before. Maybe we were rash and premature. After all, if he's raised a dead man to life, no one can do that but God alone, can they? Perhaps I would have thought they'd reevaluate. But no, and I think here is the first call of this passage as we head toward Easter, just the reluctance of these people, these leaders, these holy men to see the work of God in this. Here is the first call. We've got to worship and adore the Lord Jesus as Lord of all, even though He is not worshipped and adored by all. And the fact is, sometimes the big and the powerful and the influential the people with clout in our lives, in our community, on our televisions, the people with clout, very often, it's not that they've arrived at some cool-headed, carefully balanced, very well-considered view of the Lord Jesus. No, sometimes, folks, they just want to reinforce their own wrong-headed prejudice against Him. That's the climate in which we this week as we head to Easter, must worship and adore our Lord. And I want to say, don't let that stifle you, brothers and sisters. Don't let it bring you down and crush you. 
Uh, perhaps just one specific application here. Let not the enthusiasm, or rather the lack of enthusiasm, of others this Easter dampen your enthusiasm for Jesus. So perhaps you extend an invitation to a friend or a loved one to get along to our Easter services uh, this coming weekend. Uh, Perhaps you extend that invitation and it isn't met with anywhere near the enthusiasm you'd hoped, isn't met with anywhere near even just the politeness that you might have hoped for. Let not that crush your spirit, your joy in Jesus this year, brothers and sisters. Let's not have our celebration of Christ crushed by the thought that, hey, not everyone shares our Lord. The second call, though, of this passage, with Easter in view, with it very much on the horizon of of these men's intent, is this, let us worship and adore Jesus, not just as Lord of all, but as Lord over all all as well, over all. He is Lord over us, yes, that's true, but He is also Lord over every person, over every council, even this one who had held all the, all the cards, pulled all the strings. He is Lord over every person, every council, every power, no matter how lofty or high or mighty. Just take a look at how the conflict plays out here. Who's really the boss? Uh, so, uh, then the chief priest, verse 47, And the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all, he said. Uh, the high priest was kind of the chairman, so uh, or the president of this, this uh, gathering. You know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. I like to think of myself as... Now, you might not think of me this way, that's all right. I like to think of myself as a fairly generous arguer, which is to say, when I come across someone arguing against Christianity or against Jesus, whether in the pages of Scripture, of course, there are plenty of critics there, here's one now, um, or in regular life, I try to hear their criticism as generously as I possibly can. You know, is there some way that perhaps I can find common ground, even in your criticism of, of the faith that I hold so dear, of the Lord that I hold so dear? Can I somehow find some common ground? Can, we, can I try to understand where you're coming from? Uh, Perhaps I might at least share some of your beef, even if I can't take all of it on for myself and we can look together at this problem together. But I've got to tell you, I'm struggling here with Caiaphas, are you? Caiaphas, this high priest, a kind of holy man among holy men, how on earth does he arrive at a patently murderous plan to knock off Jesus? He's orchestrating the death of a man here. And get this, to make matters worse, what's his reasoning? Did you spot it there? It's in the, in the details once again. Did you spot, to what does he appeal? To what noble cause? To what high, lofty ideal does he appeal? You know nothing at all, verse 49, not a great start. Uh, you know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you 
that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. That is a telling little comment, isn't it? They are weighing the death of either one man or the perishing of the nation. And here's their question. Well, what's better for us? What's better for us? In fact, take another look at verse 48 as well, perhaps a detail that we just overlooked on the way through, but just, it's just one little word, but I think this casts it in a rather more sinister light. The one little word is the word our, as in ours, as in it belongs to us. Verse 48, have a look with me there. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. It's awful, isn't it? Uh, this, is, uh, this is Leon Morris commenting here. He says, neither Caiaphas nor the others were basically concerned for abstract right and wrong, nor yet for the nation as a whole. But the position of the privileged class was threatened and it is action that would save that privileged class that he advocates. So here's here's the call, brothers and sisters. While human leaders will tend to protect their privilege, their position, when they will stop at nothing, it seems, here is the call. We worship the Lord Jesus because He is Lord over all. And let us never worship men and women in His place. Um, I'll be honest, this passage troubles me as well as it baffles me. It troubles me as a religious leader, as a Christian minister, as a pastor, a leader among God's people. And I know I speak to many who either are now or have been leaders among God's people in all sorts of different capacities. It's troubling, isn't it? How could godly men, respected men, noble, devout, holy men, how could they do it? These are the holy men in their community. This isn't the mob, the mob bosses meeting in some dark room. This is the holy men, a council of religious leaders. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Uh, But we're reminded that there is more to this. Verse 51, he didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Folks, perhaps it sounds unnecessary to say it. I I, I think I'll say it anyway as we head towards Easter. There is only one Lord of the church and it's Jesus. There is only one holy man, one man of God and it's Jesus. There is only one person to whom you owe your very self, your life's work, everything about you, and it isn't your minister, and it's not your elders, it's not your boss at work, it's not anyone else, it's Jesus. Don't cover up for human leaders, not for me or anyone else. Don't bend the rules for us, not just this once, Not, we're only a small church, so that could never happen here. Not, well, we'll just make an exception this time. Our hope rests on Christ alone. This passage shows us that He can be the only hope for us. 
He is Lord over all and it is to him alone to whom we must give unwavering loyalty and trust and love and adoration and worship. He is Lord over all. But, but, and I think this is just the, it is a big but in this passage. Here is call number three. It's not just that we worship and adore Jesus as Lord of all, or that he is Lord over all, superintending even over opposition. No, we worship and serve the Lord Jesus, whoever we are, whatever we've done, because he is the Lord who can forgive all. He is bringing salvation through these dark events and this murky affair. Now, stick with me here. I'll read these verses, just those last ones again. And then I've got a question for you. So come with me from verse uh, 51 here. So we've got the purpose of God overriding, um, uh, working through, working in the midst of, working in spite of these men's actions. He didn't say this, Caiaphas didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his, that is Jesus' life. Now, here's my question. How did we get this story? How did it come down to us? How did John hear about this event that took place behind closed doors, you'd presume, wouldn't you? I mean, it's not as if the Christian disciples received their invitation to this meeting of the Sanhedrin in the mail, is it? They weren't invited, they weren't in the room, the Christian disciples. So how on earth did this story come down to us? See, I put it to you, brothers and sisters, there there was at least one man among that group who in time came to see Christ's death, not in Caiaphas's term, an expedient, convenient uh, rubbing out, but in God's terms of one man laying down his life for the salvation of the nation and indeed the nations to gather many and in place of many. So flick across very briefly with me, would you please, to chapter 19, um, a little later, the, the events indeed that this passage is looking forward to, where Jesus hung lifeless from the cross. Come with me there and let me ask you, and look, who was pulling the strings to get Jesus' body down so that he might give him a proper burial? Chapter 19 and verse 38, later, Joseph of Arimathea, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by, here we go, we've met him before, Nicodemus. And do you remember how he's described in chapter 3? A member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. So, unless there was some sickness in the family or something, Nicodemus was there, do you see? He was accompanied by Nicodemus, uh, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body, the two of them, wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. Nicodemus, I'm saying, from chapter 3, from chapter 19... He's not named here in chapter 11, but he was part of this lot. None other than Nicodemus, a member of this very body. He was part of the plan, perhaps reluctantly, 
perhaps quietly dissenting to himself, but he was among the architects of the death of the Lord Jesus himself, among the group that so from that day on they plotted to take his life. And yet in the plan of God, it seems that forgiveness even came to Nicodemus, it would seem. So here is call number three, worship and serve the Lord who can forgive all, and I mean all. If God in His great plan of salvation can bring salvation, forgiveness, rescue to Nicodemus, He can bring it to you for whatever you've done, can't He? He can have mercy on you, extend your mercy. For those of us who bear a weight of sin and wonder how God could ever forgive us for what we've done, then take Nicodemus, one one from among this number, as an emblem of the enormousness, the great scale of God's grace, His mercy, of just whom He, just the kind of person to whom He can extend forgiveness. As we head towards Easter, brothers and sisters, please... Let us heed these calls together to worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ because He is Lord of all, even though there are plenty who don't recognise Him as Lord at all. Worship and serve Him as Lord over all and let no man or woman ever take His place in our lives. We worship and serve Him alone and worship and serve Him as the Lord who forgives all, yes, even your sin. I'll I'll leave you with these words from Mark McMinn, uh, who thought very deeply on the weight of sin, and yet he concludes, God loves us. Regardless of how we've failed, God loves us when others don't. God loves us when we despise ourselves. God loves us when we defiantly choose our own foolish path, when we squander our souls with terrible decisions and when we are lost and far away. God loves us in every season and every place. God loves us not because of what we are or are not, but because God is love. Let's pray together. Yes, Father, God is love, the God whom we serve and know in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, what good news that is to our hearts. And Father, as we look at this grim and dark episode, we see the glory of Jesus shine all the more brightly. We see Him as Lord of all, we see Him as Lord over all, the the only one to whom we can entrust our lives. But Father, we also discover one to whom we can entrust our sin, the shame in the darkness from within. We can entrust it to Him for He has died for us. Lord God, we look forward to Easter, we look forward to celebrating the dark side of it, the Good Friday, uh, but we also look forward to celebrating the resurrection, the hope, the hope that Nicodemus came to know and share despite what he'd done and what he'd been a part of, the, shape that, the, the, the hope that we've come to know and share And Father, thank You so much that it rests, all of this rests, not on our rightness in ourselves, not on our doing and what we've done, but on what Christ has done and on Your great grace and sovereignty over it all. And we thank You so much for that assurance, that security. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.